Well, it's, it's good to be with you again looking at, at 1 Corinthians and particularly the second half of chapter 11. And I, I want to say tonight, um, particularly if you're feeling tired at the end of the weekend, this is a hard work talk, all right? Uh, you've got to use these, uh, these brains that God's given you uh, because I anticipate that as we look at this, we'll be discovering things that we haven't seen there before. Uh, I say that because I think sometimes when we look at the Bible and, and we see key phrases, key words, they trigger things and we think we know kind of what it's uh, talking about straight up. Uh, but the danger is that we can bring things to the Bible and not hear what it's actually saying. And uh, I think there's a danger in this passage that we can do that. See, there's a phrase there, it's called the Lord's Supper. Now, how many of you have heard of the Lord's Supper before? Just a quick show of hands. All right, that's a quick glance, almost everybody, if not everybody. And uh, how many of you have always gone to Point Church and never been to another one? Okay, uh, no. Okay, so other churches call out types of church denominations. United. United Church? Baptist? Brethren? Anglican? Lutheran? Catholic? Yep. Now, just that spread is enough for me to fear that because of the diversity of background and experience that we've all got in this room, uh, we could all be thinking of slightly different things when we read this passage because Lord's Supper, from our experience, points to certain things. And I want to ask us to be open to just kind of looking at this afresh, uh, that, that God will speak to us from his word and we won't just read back into the word our own experience and background. Um, now, I feel like I'm still a little bit boomy here. Does that, is it a little bit boomy? It's just this room? Gee, we've got to get a better room, don't we? Like, uh, yeah. All right, so let's, that's terrific, thank you. So let's have a look then at this and I've printed it out. So I know when you get in, you usually just get um, a small piece of paper and you don't even look at it. But this time you get three, all right? So I've printed out the passage and I've also printed out the points that I'm going to be making. And I encourage you to actually look along with it. Uh, and, and you'll see a few things that I'll point out as we go. But a quick overview of 1 Corinthians so far. Uh, chapters 1 to 4, Paul is talking to them about how they should be united together in the gospel. But instead of being united together in the gospel, they're divided. Some are following Paul, some Cephas, some Apollos, and so on. And so he points them back to the gospel of the death of Jesus to remind them that they're united together. Chapters 5, 6, 7 deals with some other issues. And in particular, uh, there's a sexual immorality within the church. And it's got so bad that the rest of the community would be embarrassed by what the church is doing. Uh, not only that, but they're kind of showing their dirty linen in public. They're taking one another to court. And so Paul reminds them again about the death of Jesus and how that should shape the way that they live with each other. Uh, when you get into chapter 8, 9 and 10, uh, chapters that we've been looking at very recently, you'll know that the big themes there have to do with food. Uh, and, of course, you've got people from a multicultural background. Uh, you've got some who used to be involved in a, a temple worship of other gods. Uh, you've got people who 
rather than go down to like the butcher shop to get their, their sausages and, and their steaks, would have picked it up at the temple after it had been offered in sacrifice uh, to what they thought was another god. And then you've got people, probably from a Jewish background, who have been told uh, all of their life there are some foods you can never eat. Uh, and now people seem to be eating those very foods. And of course, multiculturalism is a big challenge at the best of times, but when it is at the very core of who you are, your very religious experience, the church has to work out these things. And again, the gospel is central. So Paul reminds them that there are two big principles that they're to put into practice. That is, do what you do for the glory of God, put God first, and don't do anything that would cause another person to stumble, either a Christian stumbling into sin, or somebody who's not yet a Christian uh, being faced with a barrier to taking the gospel seriously. And that kind of brings us up to chapter 11. Uh, last week, uh, Steve dealt with that really easy passage about, you know, uh, men and women and head coverings and, and uh, you do this for the sake of the angels, very straightforward. Uh, and now we're dealing with this bit that talks about things like meals and the Lord's Supper. What do we make of it? <clears throat> well, I want to suggest to you that a key verse uh, or a couple of verses that we should remember, and I think they're really a hinge uh, in this part of 1 Corinthians are these verses that say, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, that summarised what he'd been talking about in chapters 8 to 10 with the food and, and uh, the things they could and couldn't eat and whether they'd eat it if it was going to be an offence to somebody else. And then he goes on in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so he's going to highlight and has been highlighting the importance of Jesus and how he shapes Christian behaviour. And so these verses kind of summarise what's been, but I think they also help us to understand what is about to be argued. And I say that because in this section we've also got the whole question of who Christ is and what Christ has done and, and the example of Christ. And again, we've got food. Uh, and food issues in the life of the church. In fact, I was going to call this talk uh, Fellowship and Food Fights uh, because that seems to be at the heart of what's happening. So let's pick it up then, and I'm going to take it a paragraph at a time, and uh, I want us to think afresh as to what's going on here in this passage. So first of all, I want to highlight, and this is why I'm encouraging you to look at the handout that you've been given, that there are five occasions where you get these two words come together. You see them there on the handout? Uh, if you haven't got the handout, I'll read it. Verse 17, because when you come together, it's not for better, but for worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Down in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And so he goes on. So the introduction to this has to do with when you come together. But it's also the conclusion of this. So if you go down, I've highlighted the last two sentences. So then, my brothers, right, this is where he's taking us. This is the outcome, the conclusion. So then when you come together, and then in verse 20, 34, if anyone's hungry, etc., etc., so that when you come together, it will be not for judgment. Now, 
This is a passage about the church when they come together. Uh, now, what we're dealing with here is not an ordinary word for the church. Uh, the church is sometimes described as the ecclesia, that's the Greek word for gathering. Uh, there's different images that get used of the church. But here, he particularly uses what is in the original one word, and I'll give you a Greek lesson tonight, right? So you can go away and, and uh, talk to your flatmates or, or the people in your house and say, I'll learn another language tonight. Uh, I'll learn ancient New Testament Greek. Uh, here's the word. It's one word. It's a compound word in the original. Sun erkamai. You say it? Sun erkamai. Now, the sun bit means together. Uh, together we come, or you come, or they come. And, and the big deal here is that God's people are coming together for a purpose. Now, what is the purpose? Well, we're going to see a whole lot more of what they're to do when they come together through chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. But here, picking up what we see in this passage, it has to do with them eating together. And so when you come together, uh, you are sharing meals, but you see that, that instead of coming together to be together, they, they come together to come apart because there are factions amongst them, there are divisions among them. You get some people who are so selfish that they're pigging out on their picnic basket while there are other people who are desperately hungry. You get some people who are, who are kind of getting into the drink so much that by the time the, the gathering is really underway, there are some people who are already drunk. Um, they're not coming together to be together as Christians. They're coming together to engage in selfish, prideful uh, disinterested behaviour. It, it's the factions, it's the divisions, it's the friction, it's the same behaviour that we've seen back in chapter 1, causing them to line up behind Paul, Apollos and Cephas. It's the same behaviour that leads them to take each other to court uh, in chapter 6. The, this is a church not to take as an example to follow. If anything, it's the anti-example. So if you want to see what a church should not be like, go to Corinth. And that's what he says. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for better, but for worse. There are divisions. And then he has this kind of, I think, satirical statement. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. No. No, when God's people come together, they are to be together because when they come together, they're to be the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is not to be divided. And we'll see that in chapters 12, 13 and 14. That is, the church together is, is a body with different parts and the different parts are all important. And, and they're not to denigrate the lesser parts. They're actually to see the value that God has given different gifts and they're all to be used together, but that's next week's sermon and I'll leave Steve for that. There's plenty here. Now, what we need to look at, I think, because this is where our brains kind of immediately take us to our experience and our pre-knowledge, is what's he talking about there when he speaks of the Lord's Supper? And I'll read to you again verses 20 and 21. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. 
One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in and so on? See, let's look at this closely because there are some people who I know, if they wanted to describe what the Lord's Supper should be like, would go straight to 1 Corinthians 11. And there's some important stuff here that we need to grapple with, particularly in the next paragraph. But let's try to follow the argument through from the beginning. He's not saying the Corinthians are doing the Lord's Supper. He doesn't make that point at all. He says they're not. Right? They're not doing it. But what's he talking about? Now, at this point, I need to pick up on what I think are are two unhelpful things in translation. One is to do with Greek, and the other is to do with English, as in the Poms. So the first one, the Greek one. um, Literally, the word the is not there in the original. Now, if you've, uh, if you've done English the way it should be done, you know that the is the definite article. It's a way of pointing out something particular. So um, this is the lectern, right? Um, you could say it's a lectern because there's a, a few of them around. There's this thing here. But this thing here is, this is really weak and flimsy and falls over all the time like it did this morning. This is the lectern. Um, but... That's, that word isn't actually here. It's not saying this is not the Lord's Supper. It's just it's not a Lord's Supper. But then, of course, we've got a problem with English. Um, any of you actually come from England? Okay. Um, what, is, what is supper in England? Supper is dinner in England, right? And, and the first English translation of the Bible is before we even had Australia. So we can't have an Australian version. We've got to borrow it from the English. And supper in England means something totally different to what it means here. See, I went to church at night for ages and we had supper after church. Uh, When I was growing up, my dad had supper because he was allowed to stay up late. And sometimes I'd go out and I'd see that he was having a glass of milk with Ovaltine in it. Remember Ovaltine? Or, Or Milo, that's modern translation. Uh, and there'd be a piece of cake that my mother had made, and I used to look forward to the time when I was old enough to have supper, when I could stay up late enough to have supper. It never entered my mind that it was a real meal. And so, of course, when you're talking about the Lord's Supper, and it's only a little bit, right, because you only get a small piece of bread and a small piece of juice, I thought, duh, of course, because you're not having a full meal. It's just a supper. But this was translated into English and the word would be better translated as dinner than it would be supper or a meal because it doesn't really matter what time of day you do it. In fact, you could have dinner at lunchtime, couldn't you, in England if it was a big hot meal and a baked dinner. Um, That's what's on view here. The, The people are gathering to have a meal. And in fact, I can actually pick on the ESV. Um, I didn't notice this at first. I got very confused this morning because I I had both in front of me and I'd go from one translation to the other. But see the word there that says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat? And you've got supper. Then in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Same word in the original. The same word. So what you might want to do, at least on the piece of paper, is cross out supper and write meal. Because it sounds different, doesn't it? Let me read it with a different kind of um, emphasis. That is, when you come together, it's not 
a meal of the Lord that you're eating. Um, We wouldn't think of a particular uh, token meal of bread and juice in church if that's all we were reading. It's what comes after us that kind of points that way. But the thing is, they're gathering for meals and they're not living Christianly when they do it. Some are having lots, some are missing out, some are getting drunk. They're not caring for each other. So it's not a meal of the Lord. And in fact, if you really want to get technical here, the word for Lord is not actually the noun, it's the of the Lord. It's a a different word. So what's happening? Well, they're gathering together, they're coming together, and they're not coming together to come together, they're fracturing And their meal that they're having together is not a Lord-like meal. It's not shaped by the Lord. It's shaped by their own preferences. And we've heard enough, and we'll hear more to the letter, in the letter to the Corinthians, that that's not how they're to live. They're not to be exercising their own preference at the expense of each other. He said that many times in chapters 8 to 10. Now, don't use your freedom... Uh, to put other people down, to disregard other people. No, you, you come together because you're actually coming together as a body. Let's look on at the next section. Because the next section is part of his argument. And you know it's the uh, argument because it starts with the word for. And when you see the word for, you should ask what it's there for. All right? um, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and we'll we'll go on and look at that in a second. How is what he's saying about Jesus, uh, and it's clearly reminding us of the last meal that he had uh, with his followers in that upper room, how does that serve to uh, flesh out the argument about how they're acting when they gather together to have a meal. Well, at the very core, right, without reading anything else into it, at the very core, that last meal of Jesus, so I want to call it the last supper, but it was just the last meal of Jesus, was a meal that had great significance for the people of Israel and Jesus changed it. So the people of Israel at the time of the Passover, ever since they were rescued from slavery in Egypt, would have a feast of unleavened bread and they would remember that God had saved them from being slaves in Egypt. And they'd gather around the meal table and they'd celebrate this at the Passover on an annual basis. But when Jesus gets together with his followers, he doesn't say, um, Matthew, uh, Peter, John, remember the Passover? Remember when you were saved from slavery in Egypt? No, Jesus, after the meal, takes the cup and the bread and he says these things. That is, this 
is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me try and point out the audacity of what Jesus is doing. Anzac Day, right? What do we celebrate on Anzac Day? We celebrate a tragedy, really. Um, the, the slaughter of so many people. But, but it, it, it's come to be a celebration of, of the bravery and the camaraderie of, of the joint forces from Australia and New Zealand uh, there in Turkey. And every year for the last hundred years plus, uh, people gather together and they remember that event. You imagine someone on national TV are getting up in an Anzac Day service, perhaps the big one outside the War Memorial down in Canberra, and saying, as we gather together this day, I want you to remember me. Right? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying that celebration, it's really about him. And what is it about him? It's to be his bloodshed. It's to be his body broken. The Passover lamb, you see, wasn't ultimately about the blood of a lamb painted above the doorposts. It was the Passover lamb who would be the son of God hanging on a cross. And that's something that Paul's already spoken of back in chapter 5 or 6, I think it is. You see, the Passover was pointing to Jesus. And it's about Jesus' body and blood. And there, in that meal, you see what it is to be Christian. It's it's to give your life to see other people saved. It's, It's to serve those around about you. And that's what Jesus is doing. I think perhaps Paul is picking up on this tradition that he's received from Jesus in this argument, just to show how different their meals are from Jesus' meal. Because Jesus' meal was all about serving others, and they're all about serving themselves. Well, let's pick it up at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Their behaviour has been appalling. And God has actually brought his disciplining judgment upon them. Some of them have got very sick. Some of them have even died. And that ought to be a warning to them that they are not living as the body of Christ. They're they're living as as a fractured, selfish community. And it's talking here about God's discipline upon them to to actually draw them back so that they realise the danger of the way that they're living and they might be saved on the day of judgment as they return to the gospel of Jesus. But what does it mean then to eat and and, and drink of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? Well, I think in this context, it's about the fact that they're just being selfish with each other. And if they're to live in a way which is selfish with one another, then they're in danger of judgment because they've not taken the gospel to heart. And so they ought to examine themselves as they eat and they drink of the cup. And... 
as they eat and drink, they need to recognise or discern the body. Because if they don't, they'll bring judgment on themselves. What does that mean? Let me give you uh, two explanations. That is, many people have looked at this and uh, recognised that, say, you've got a, a Catholic position which has seen the, the bread and the wine actually changing into the body and blood of Jesus, and you've got a Lutheran position, which is, uh, it still sees something kind of happening, mystical perhaps, but it's not actually the real body and blood of Jesus. And then you've got a, uh, another position, say the Anglican position, which is to say this is a, a special kind of remembrance. And, and so when people come from these different backgrounds and they look at this, many of them would think you've got to discern the body um, that is, you've got to discern that what you're dealing with here in the bread is it's actually the body of Christ. Or, that's the, the, the kind of, that end. Or they'd say, no, you've, you've, you've just got to realise that it's a serious meal that you've come to, this, this Lord's Supper meal. Um, and you've got to make sure that you're right with God. And so if you're not right with God, don't dare eat of this bread. Alright? Now, I don't think that's what it's saying, and and I'll I'll point out why. Because it's not saying anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and blood. It just says the body, without discerning the body. And I think it makes better sense in the context here, and I'm, I'm just sharing my thoughts on this, you need to work this out. Don't believe me, believe the passage. You might need to work on it. I think it makes better sense to understand this, is they're not remembering that they are the body of Christ. And so they're being selfish with each other. They're disregarding each other. They're not recognising that they are the body. I don't think it's particularly talking about a special view of a cup and the bread. But as they drink of the cup and they they eat of the bread, whether it's a full-blown meal or whether it might be more what we are used to, that is a token meal of, of a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, We need to remember that we're gathered together as the body and love each other and serve each other and reach out to each other. Um, One of the strange ideas I think that churches have kind of adopted, not all of them, but some over the years, is to think that, that the Lord's Supper is about a private communion with God. That is, I'll get my piece of bread and I'll get my my little bit of juice. And I won't communicate with anybody else because it's all about me and God and getting it right. But the whole thrust of this passage is when you come together. It's about being together. That's what it's about. And if it's not talking about discerning that this is somehow special as the, as the either uh, representative body and blood of Christ or whatever... I think, therefore, and this is me giving my application of this, that it's perfectly appropriate when we gather together as church and we have food and drink to actually offer it to everybody who's among us, whether they be old or young, whether they be Christian or not Christian. Now, I know that some churches are actually not quite sure what the practice has been at the point uh, or it's salt even, so I can speak in relative ignorance, uh, will say, look, if, if you're not a Christian, you might like to just pass this on. Uh, 
or to say, look, if you're a, a follower of the Lord Jesus from another church and you're here with us this morning, you're very welcome to take part in this because it's been seen specifically as a meal for Christians, uh, this token meal of the bread and the wine. And I think it is for Christians. But I don't think that there's any problem with the person who's not a Christian eating and drinking. I don't think we would prevent anybody from having supper afterwards. I don't think if we were putting on a full-blown meal, like we do at the life course, for example, we would say, look, this is for Christians. Uh, just pass the luxor on if uh, you're not a Christian. All right? I just can't work out why we would do it. I can work out why we would we would get somebody to pass on the the bread and the wine if we thought that the risk was that they don't know exactly what it is that they're handling and that by not understanding that, they they might bring judgment on themselves. But I really don't think that's what the passage is saying. And so, therefore, what I am encouraging at SALT is for everyone to share in this bread, and, and we did this last night, and this grape juice. And if you've not come to the point where you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, you're very welcome to have this with us all. But know that we're doing it because it actually points us to the significance of what Jesus has done for us. And so they can both be included and reminded of what we're doing. That's where I'm coming from. So what do we make of all this? There's lots, right? And, and this is one of those kind of... Um, you know the modern tendency with, with food is you have deconstruction. You have deconstruction, degestation. Um, uh, I had a deconstructed cake given to me once. Uh, it was a jar and it had flour and it had chocolate bits and it had a few other things. And I thought, you can't eat that. Uh, but the tendency with some of these kind of vegan restaurants is you get a... A, a deconstructed meal because you've got your you've got your kale over there, and you've got your artichokes over there, and, and you've got your cabbage there, and your lettuce there, and, and something else there that doesn't breathe, and <laughs> and and you're meant to put it together. Well, this sermon's been a bit like that, right? It's a deconstructed sermon because I just need to take you through some of this process. Because if I was simply to come here and say, look, I think we've got all this Lord's Supper stuff completely wrong. Uh, and not take us through the passage, uh, that would be very unfair. But what does it mean for us? A couple of things. I think it's assuming that we will come together to celebrate uh, being the body of Christ together and that that will often involve meals. And it certainly did for the early church. And one of the wonderful things that we see right through the scriptures is this picture of heaven for all eternity as a banquet. And so there's something about Christians gathering together and sharing food together um, that's a really significant expression of who we are. What does it mean then for what we have traditionally called the Lord's Supper? Well, I think um, it's not something that's been commanded of us. That's what I think. But I don't think it's a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a very good thing for us to be reminded of the death of Jesus for us whenever we can. And if we do that by sharing a, a token meal, one where we just highlight two things, the cup and the bread, um, let's do that in a way that honours Christ. 
where our hearts are in the right place because we recognise that we're part of the body together and we share in that fellowship in a good way. I think there's a lot of freedom in doing that. Um, in, our, in our growth groups, for example, uh, as we gather together with our families from time to time around the meal to specifically focus on the death of Jesus. Many of us would say grace before a meal. We thank God for the food. Uh, let's thank God for Jesus. One friend actually, uh, he'd, he'd uh, come from a background where there was a lot of formal dinners and stuff in his, in his life. Uh, he was in the military and there would regularly be toasts. And he thought, wouldn't it be great for us to give a toast to Jesus? Um, and, and he was saying that with respect. You know, we, we toast people that we love, don't we, at a wedding? Yeah, to the bride and to the groom. Uh, we, we, we toast the achievement of, of a person reaching their 80th birthday. Let's celebrate this. Uh, we, we celebrate all kinds of things. I don't think it means we, we kind of raise a toast to Jesus and then sing for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. That would be a little bit flippant. Um, but there are so many ways that we can honour and celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus. We do it in singing. We do it in Bible reading. We do it in sharing testimony. Uh, we, we do it with, um, with skits and plays and puppet shows. Uh, we can do it around meals. We can do it with what we've traditionally called the Lord's Supper. Well, I'm going to leave it at that point. And um, I think we might have 